You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host today, Sloan Simmons. Great to be with you again. An attorney out of the Sacramento office, partner and one of the firm's co-practice group leaders in the litigation area, um, but do a lot of work in students, which makes it very exciting today for me to be talking with Ruth Mendick, one of our firm's longtime attorneys. Uh, an expert in the full range of anything you can think of in facilities of business and board governance, but also in the student area as one of our firm's two student practice group co-leaders. We're going to be talking about today this year's new legislative enactments as it goes in the student area. And later on today, I'll be catching up with our co-practice group leader, Amy Perry, to go over some of the bills that you and I don't cover, Ruth. Um, But we have a range of bills, obviously, directly related to students, perhaps not as many as we've seen in years past, but certainly some very important ones. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yes, we've got a lot of different things that uh, the legislature has pointed to in terms of um, students in a lot of different areas. So a lot of different things to talk about and address in the next year to come. So it seems like um, and I know that this is based upon you know your analysis of some of these laws, but I think in some ways we can drop some of these bills into certain buckets. So why don't we start first with uh, bills that we might generally consider to fall into the, the student safety type area? Sure. This has obviously been um, a, an issue that has been created a lot of attention, not only in California, but nationwide concerns about bullying, concerns about students being harassed, and also concerns about suicide prevention. So in response, I think, to a lot of these concerns that the legislature has heard, there are at least four bills that are directing districts to do certain things towards the protection of the safety of students. And the first one of those is, um, is to require districts to have a poster that they are going to have available for their high school, uh, at their high school sites, the ninth through 12th grade school sites. And this poster has to um, provide the information that students might need if they want to uh, file a complaint about sexual harassment. So it's basically memorializing elements of districts already mandatory sexual harassment policy into uh, a a bite-sized poster that can be easily understood by students as to their rights and abilities to file complaints when it pertains to harassment? Correct. And I think one of the important things here, too, is that the bill requires that it identify who the person would be if a student does want to file a complaint. So, And that's going to have to be somebody who's at their school site. So it's a real real live person who they can go to if they have these kind of concerns. So... what is your view on kind of the there's two things that kind of jump out at me uh, with this one there hasn't there historically been a requirement to do some type of posting as to the policy itself already there is and this uh is i guess an an additional requirement um and it must you know has even like the details about how how big it can be and or must be and 
what the font size needs to be in the print. So it's, it's obvious that there's a interest in making sure that this is conspicuous and available, um, you know, down to making sure that it's posted in bathrooms and locker rooms at every, you know, high school site and then available to be posted other places also if schools decide to do that. But a real effort in making it obvious and available to students. Now, to the extent the legislation uh, permits, if not encourages, uh, districts to cooperate with local, state, or other federal agencies or nonprofits to come up with a poster, is, is it your expectation that we'll probably see a model for this from the CDE? I would hope that we would. Um, the concern is that, uh, you know, this bill is effective. This new law is going to be effective January 1. So that doesn't give us a whole lot of time to get that ready to go. So um, in the meantime, I think districts should be thinking about how am I going to satisfy the requirements of this poster, you know, by January, if that's, you know, when it's going to kick in here. Right. So districts should be thinking and working with their uh, their administration and legal counsel if necessary to be designing that poster now, even if CD is going to do something, which I, I would just because of kind of the way things get processed at the CDE and the range of things they have to do, I'd, I'd imagine that even if they are going to provide a model, it, it might be something that we don't see till the spring. Correct. And, and one thing also that may, you know, factor into the timing here is that the poster has to be not only in English, but in any language that's spoken by 15 or more percent of the students at the school site. So to the extent that it's going to require additional time for the translation, districts need to kind of factor that into their timeline. Got it. Got it. Now, what what about, it seems like there's a, not directly the same, but a, a similar related bill in terms of bullying and harassment prevention. Correct. Now, this one um, is AB 34, and this bill uh, requires posting on the district's website, where the first bill that we talked about requires like physical posting in, you know, bathrooms and locker rooms. This one is about posting on the district's website. And this includes a whole list of items that need to be um, posted there, uh, including the sexual harassment policy that we talked about, um, but also the suicide prevention policies, uh, any that are responding to hate violence, the anti-discrimination policies, anti-bullying and anti-cyberbullying policies. So all of those need to be uh, included on district's website so they're available to students. Now, as I look at this list of the various policies that are required on this notice, um, most of these, obviously, in fact, all of them, there is a, a corresponding CSBA model policy, including ones for suicide prevention, harass, sexual harassment, anti-discrimination harassment, anti-intimidation, anti-bullying. There's CSBA's models cover all of that. I do note, though, that when it comes to the hate violence uh, model. If I recall correctly, that's only an AR or it's only a BP, one of the two. And I mm -hmm. know that as districts in the past year or two have experienced, and this is anecdotally, I would, I would say, an increase in what they would characterize potentially as hate violence or hate expression. Um, I, I think there are a range of districts around the state who are currently considering or preparing maybe a rob more robust administrative regulation or version of, of the policy that CSBA's model presently covers. Just, I would throw that out there that I, it does seem to be a trend that more districts are looking at and adopting 
that hate violence related model from CSBA, but then taking the next step to expand and uh, and add to that, sometimes integrating it with its its school equity policies and obviously these other related policies such as anti-bullying, anti-discrimination, et cetera. True. I will also note that the statute up until this point has required a policy on suicide prevention directed at the older students, but this new requirement now is going to be for a suicide prevention policy for the elementary age students. And so to the extent that districts don't already have that in place, these policies will need to be incorporated into the existing policy or districts will have to create a new standalone policy to address these new requirements. There is certainly a long laundry list of items that need to be included in this posting, so it wouldn't be too early for districts to start gathering these things together. The good news is that this requirement doesn't kick in until the start of the 2021 school year, so we've got several months now to get the items together to be posted on the website and ready to go. Yeah, and I think probably now is a good time, as good a time as any, Ruth, to, to note that I assume you and, and Ms. Perry are working with the Lozano Smith CNB team and that there will be comprehensive client news briefs issued by Lozano Smith on, on all of these bills, right? There are, yes, they are in the works. So you just mentioned it. Uh, what about the AB 1767 and suicide prevention policies? Right, this is the new one that is going to be required to be directed at, at the younger students, um, kindergarten through grades one through six. And this is one that has to be uh, available by the beginning of the 2021 school year and needs to be adopted at a regularly scheduled board meeting. So that indicates to me that the intent here is to get parent input and community input into what needs to be included in these policies. It's interesting to me, I mean, and you you noted it a few minutes ago that prior to now we didn't have the policy requirement for these earlier grades, but it does, it seems like it is a, obviously there's a model already for, for the older kids, but this presents a unique perhaps issue of policy drafting with the, the concept of age appropriateness. And, you know, how do you, how do you frame up a policy on this subject, say for especially your, your really younger kids, K through three or so? Correct. And that's why the, the um, legislation, you know, asks districts to, you know, work with their school and community stakeholders, folks that are professionals in the mental health area and suicide prevention experts so that they get that input uh, as to what would be appropriate for talking about these difficult issues with children that are so young. Do you know whether or not was there legislative analyses and in terms of the sponsor of the bill as to the thought process behind um, a policy going down as low as kindergarten, first and second grade? I don't know what the specific analysis was, but generally speaking, there's just more of a interest and put towards suicide overall and that it is reaching because of that. I think it's Younger children are hearing about it more, and there's just more information out there. So I would expect that the intent here is to try to get those children more prepared to deal with these kinds of issues as they are just more uh, available in the media, if no place else. That makes a lot of sense. But anything else on AB 1767 you think we should know about, or should we head on over to student identification cards? 
Well, I'll just note that this bill, the suicide prevention bill, is also going to need to be on the five-year renewal uh, review process, just like the policy for the older kids. And this is one that is going to need to be included in the website posting that we talked about earlier. Got it. Got it. So what is this new change as it relates to student ID cards under SB 316? Well, you might remember that previously districts were required to um, include now on student ID cards for their high school students or for their 7 to 12th grade students information about suicide prevention. And now this is going to be required to... Uh, also include information about the domestic violence hotline. So um, in addition to having information about the, you know, the phone line, the phone number to call for suicide prevention, um, now we need to include information also for 7th to 12th graders on the domestic violence. And this, um, this bill is going to kick in in October of 2020, also relating to public and private colleges and universities. So not only is this reaching out to the, to the high school students, but it also is going to be a requirement for those public and private colleges that issue uh, student identification cards. Yeah, it's, in some ways, it's uh, unique in that it's, you know, the work we do, including with community college districts and sometimes um, other entities in post-secondary ed, it's rare that the legislature actually passes legislation that jointly addresses K-12 and post-secondary at the same time. Correct, especially up until, you know, especially because it includes private colleges and universities. Oftentimes we may see references to community colleges, but rarely to the private side also. And you said that the, the deadline when this takes effect for, uh, for K-12? Yeah, so as of October 1st, 2020, districts will be required to have this information on their on their ID cards. So it's kind of an awkward time in terms of usually, you know, these ID cards are prepared in the summer in preparation for the fall, but uh, districts are allowed to use whatever cards they may have already pre-printed and use those up. And then as they start um, issuing new cards after the deadline, then they must have this information included on there. Got it. So if you've uh, if you're a a, a very forward looking district and has uh, purchased on a good deal online ID cards in the uh, in a very large large quantity, in theory, you could be using those for the next five years before you shift over to new cards with this info. That's true. Um, also, I would encourage districts to think about if they have any kind of an arrangement with the companies who take their students' photographs for the ID cards. Perhaps if that company is in charge of taking the pictures and putting them on the ID card and actually doing the lamination or whatever is required there, there should be a communication with that company so that they're prepared too for this to when the when the deadline does kick in. Well, that's a great tip. It's a great tip. I, I, on this point, the thing that's interesting is that the law appears to say that if you have that the extra stock of unused cards that you have to use those. So even if you, as a district, wanted to, you know, in the interest of getting this information out to students, purchase new ones, I mean, the way I'm reading it is that the, that you have to continue to use the unused cards until it's depleted. Mm-hmm. True. Interesting. So what about our, the, the area that probably always draws a lot of interest 
every year, student discipline. Yes, we don't have a lot of bills on student discipline this year, but um, the one that, at least one of them that we have has been long coming, and that is um, SB 416. And this is the bill that addresses um, discipline based on willful defiance and disruption, which we oftentimes refer to as the K violation because it appears as uh, subdivision K in the 48900 section, which outlines grounds for discipline. And as you might remember, there's this bill has been uh, presented to the governor in the last several years in various forms. And Governor Brown, at least, did not sign it. And now um, Governor Newsom did sign this bill. It's had various um, versions over the years, but the version that did get signed this year now permanently eliminates the ability for districts to suspend students based on a K violation for those students who are in kindergarten up through grade five. And there's a temporary elimination of being able to suspend until up until January 2025 for those grades six through eight. And this law takes effect July 1, 2020, right, Ruth? Correct. This is going to be interesting. I mean, I think obviously there were, over the years, there have been uh, reasons why this law was vetoed. There continues to be a degree of uh, controversy or two sides to the coin as to eliminating this as a grounds for discipline uh, altogether, especially for, say, the, the higher grades. Obviously, for high school students, that authority remains in place. There's a ton of legislative work that's been done over the last decade to establish these layers of alternative and other means of correction when it comes to K violations so that we're not removing kids from the classroom for this type of behavior. But but I, I, I still think there will be, there's going to be some growing pains for certain with this legislation's implementation heading into next year. Wouldn't you agree? True. Yeah. And, and it's also important to note that these um, restrictions are, you know, focused on suspension for these younger kids, but there's a, you know, ban on using the K violation for expelling students on in any grade level. Right. So really what's left then is to be able to suspend um, your older kids for a K violation, but you may not still expel them for that. What's the what, what do you know about the experiences of, of LA and SFUSD when it comes to, to K violations? Well, they are two of about five or six districts that we know of who have gone ahead and and enforced a complete ban on suspensions um, based on willful defiance or disruption in all grade levels. So they've taken this you know up up another step and have um, just essentially eliminated that as a grounds for uh, discipline of their students. Now, I, the carve-out remains, correct, for the ability of a teacher to suspend a student from their class as opposed to a school suspension in or out of school by a school administrator. That carve-out for teachers' authority under 48910 of the Education Code remains in place, right? True. Yes. The teachers still have the ability to suspend from their classroom. Yeah, which the interesting, I'll just throw this, throw this out there. The one concept that I 
I've seen districts throughout the state uh, uh, grappling with is that obviously there's a huge legislative wave of work to avoid student removals from the educational setting 4K violations, a la these restrictions, and ultimately as of July 1, 2020, all out bans on K through 5 suspensions, then the temporary through grade 8. But uh, there's been some dialogue and debate as to whether or not a teacher suspending 4K from their class is required to first utilize other means of correction before doing so. I know our plain reading of those laws is that, in fact, 48900.5 that calls for other means of correction before suspending for a first-time offense does apply to teacher suspensions under the plain definition of suspension of the Ed Code. And, and through, through exchanges with uh, the CD's legal department, without that being uh, legal guidance that you can necessarily turn to as binding, the CD's legal department uh, agrees with that view. And so I do think that's, that's an area where I think there's a, a, a plain interpretation under the law that calls for other means of correction to be utilized first before a first-time offense, but also one that perhaps in future years will get a, a further step by the legislature to put to rest any debate on that point. I've always thought that it doesn't, that, that obligation isn't one that's hard to overcome because if you're a teacher suspending for a student's defiance or disruption in class, it's almost certain that that's not a first-time offense and that, and that prior to that point in time, you've utilized other means of correction like a counseling one-on-one meeting with the teacher and student or a parent-teacher meeting or a referral of the student to a counselor or referral to the office without a suspension. And so while something that gets debated, I think the burden isn't that high for teachers to meet without before utilizing 48910 for, uh, for K violations. I'm not sure if you've got different or other thoughts on that, Ruth. Well, I would, I would also say that I would, oftentimes I think when the, when the grounds kind of exist for a K violation that a student is being, you know, defiant or disruptive, there may be other reasons too that would support the student being removed from the classroom or removed from school. And um, those maybe can be uh, grouped together to help uh, support that if that's what the teacher feels is appropriate. Well, this next one, I can tell you, I've, I've, I'm, I'm glad they finally said it because we've, we've run around on this one for years or this subject matter. But what's, what does AB 982 do in terms of homework for suspended students? Well, this is another example which seems to go hand-in-hand with the expanded ban on suspensions for disruption and defiance, and that is a goal of making sure that students aren't missing out on academics when they are absent because of discipline issues. And this bill uh, kicks in in January, and it will require now that for students who are suspended, that they, for two or more days, two or more school days, that they uh, must be provided any homework that they are going to miss upon request. And the request can be made by the student, him or herself, parents, guardians, or whomever it is that has the educational rights for the student. So the, the goal here is just to make sure that even if the student is not present in class because of discipline reasons, they don't fall behind academically because of that absence. And I would just add for context, the rub has been over the years 
that Education Code 48903 states that a teacher may require a student to have completed their work, including exams that they miss while being suspended, which on one hand could be interpreted to mean, well, if the teacher wanted to require them to do that, they could. But on the flip side, if you were a district that wanted to establish that as a matter of practice, there was at times pushback that you couldn't require a teacher to do that. Uh, this, in essence, clears that concept up, at least in terms of when requested by a student. I suppose the, the natural next question would be, can you, under the authority of this statute, to the extent not addressed explicitly as a district, say, even if not requested, we're going to require that homework be provided so that even in the, in the lapse of a request, we're, we're doing the best we can to make sure a student keeps on track um, even with short-term suspensions for, for two days or for more than, you know, two or three or four days once beyond, beyond that two-day mark in the, in the bill. Yeah, and I think in, in kind of response to that, um, there is language in this uh, statute that allows for the homework to be returned, you know, when, to be completed and turned in when the student, you know, returns to class or when it was originally due, whichever is later. So it gives the student some cushion for getting it done. If, if they're absent and they get an assignment that's not due till the next week, um, they obviously don't have to return, turn it in when they return to class the next day. They've got the same kind of timeline that their other classmates do. do you, what, what's a, is there any practical tips that you might give to a district in light of this, this new law? Well, I would suggest that districts look at their you know, notice of suspension letter and at least perhaps like alert parents to the fact that they've got the option that they can ask for homework so that they don't come back later and say, well, gosh, if I would have only known, I would have asked for it. So even though it has to be a parent request, I think it's good to let them know that that option is available. And then on the flip side, I think it's also going to be important to let the teachers know, hey, the law has changed here. And if mom and dad ask for it, then we have to have it ready for them. Right. Um, I also think it'll be it'll be interesting now in different technology to know, hey, can the can the teacher say, hey, it's on my you know Google site or it's available online. They just need to look at it online. But to communicate that to them, how is that? It may not necessarily be here's the worksheet, the paper worksheet that needs to be turned in, but instead, you know, look at look at my site and you can see what the assignment is that you're going to be missing. Right. I think even within the last two weeks in a scenario, I, I kind of heard this situation where there, the technology being used by this given district uh, would permit student and parent on a daily basis to access what was being assigned, including some, some type of maybe actual updates or, or email pings that the students get to notify them of, of the assignment. The, the, you know, the student information systems today that districts are using are so highly functional um, and the utilities within them, it seems like you, know, you, you could, along, along with these tips that you're recommending as far as putting it into the notice of suspension form, it seems like there's a hand-in-hand -hand coordination that could be made that ties into the, the district's tech in a way that makes this perhaps fairly easy. True. And, and maybe the, you know, in the notice of suspension letter could be helpful for districts to just note the fact that Hey, you know, many many assignments are already available through the teacher's website. 
If you have any questions, then you can certainly request uh, any other homework that might be have been provided in class. Got it. Well, this next one has made, I think I've seen national headlines on this for the last week or so, and that is uh, California's first-in-the-nation bill to address start times for middle and high school students under SB 328. What do you say? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think of all the bills that we're going to talk about today, this one probably has the fewest number of words in it, but like you say, it's going to have the biggest ripple effect, not only in California, but it's bleeding over into the rest of the country too. And that is uh, to push back the start times for middle and high school students. So um, the the bottom line is that the uh, older kids now don't have to be uh, or have to have a start time that's at 8 or 8.30, depending on whether it's middle school or high school. And one of the trickiest things about this bill is is like, when does it start? In other words, when do we need to start um, worrying about it? And the reason is because the bill has a kind of an open open window for the for the effective date, and that is it needs to be started or implemented, it says, by July 1, 2022, or a later date if the district or the charter school has a bargaining agreement that is operative as of January 1, 2020, but expires at some later time. So it um, leads to some ambiguity because many districts have more than one collective bargaining agreement and the bill doesn't specify which one do we look to. Do we worry about the certificated only or do we focus on the classified? But the bill doesn't tell us which one it should be. So even when we need to implement this is still kind of a question in the bill, in the language of the bill itself. And then obviously related to uh, the collective bargaining agreements, it's just that th- this will require obviously a lot of conversation with um, the units to, to, to negotiate the start times for the employees, whether they are classified or, or certificated. And those items will have to be negotiated into the uh, bargaining agreements going forward. Is there, what about the, the concept of the definition of middle school versus high school? Well, they didn't define that either. So it's not clear whether this is going to be, you know, middle school is seventh and eighth grade, or some districts have sixth through eighth, or seven to nine. Right. Um, and what does that mean if you have a, you know, have a school site that houses, say, fifth through eighth grade? Do some of the students come early and some come late? That's not clear, and obviously that has a huge impact on busing and just general scheduling, not only, you know, for district schedules, but also, you know, for family schedules. You don't want to have to have a parent make have to make two trips to drop the student off or the bus to make two trips to bring the students to school, uh, especially if they're going to the same site. Right, and, and I don't have my hardbound blue education code in front of me right now, but... I feel like there are some provisions in the code that include definitions regarding what a high school or middle school is. I may be incorrect on that point. I do know that Section 2 of the California Code of Regulations, Title Five, has definitions that may work. Uh, but again, as you say, Ruth, they aren't explicitly referenced in the new bill. And so that they may uh, provide some context or meaning to those terms. They certainly are clearly controlling in that situation. True. I don't, there was no 
direct connection in this bill to any other definition, right. not only to this uh, middle and high school, but also to what's probably the biggest issue here is there's an exemption for, of these requirements for rural school districts. However, again, no definition of what that is intended to mean. And there's no notation about where we should look for that definition to know what qualifies as a rural school district. Oh, that is, that is interesting. Yeah. How, so, how far can you sh- stretch, stretch? I mean, I think there's, I mean, I can think of a range of districts in different parts of the state that would probably easily fit that. But, who, you know, one's on the bubble. Uh, which often will include some of our smaller school districts around the state. Uh, that's that's interesting. Well, and many times districts will have, you know, students in, you know, an urban area, but they also serve students outside the urban area. And so is it going to be a is it going to be a calculation of percentage if you have a certain number of percentage of students that are in an urban area or those that are not? Does that um help define whether you qualify. There are, def- there are federal definitions that are used uh, related to the um, free and reduced lunch programs. Those may be definitions because how could a s- district be rural for one purpose and not for the other? That would be a very difficult place to be in. What about the, the concept of zero periods, Ruth? Well, the, the uh, bill doesn't really address that, so it still seems like that that's permissible to have um, zero periods for for classes, even though they're going to be you know starting later. So there may be a lot more zero period offered if you know your um, your middle school students aren't starting until in, until eight o'clock, and your high schoolers aren't starting till eight thirty. So there may be more time in the morning to have you know zero period classes and then conclude earlier in the day because obviously. Starting later means you're ending later, which means that's going to impact after-school activities, you know, music practices, um, athletic practices, meets, you know, games, that kind of thing. So it's going to mean that the day is just going to end a lot later than it has been. Ruth, could could you give just a, a quick note on kind of what the policy rationale behind this legislation was? Well, the reported rationale is uh, that there have been studies that report that students um, don't become engaged, I guess, intellectually until later in the day for in this age um, span. And so the idea, I think, is that because we're waiting until later for classes to start, the students will be more engaged in classes and will be able to learn better. And I think I also saw uh, as another component of that similar or separate studies talking about the idea of the importance of sleep and rest for kids in this age range. True. And so whether or not this, this, uh, this helps in that respect. I, I, as I sit here hearkening back several decades now, I think they could have started high school for me at 1030 and I still would have been racing into the parking lot a few minutes before it started, no matter when they did it. It's just... Uh, I guess maybe some things haven't changed. I feel like I'm still doing that when I'm heading places. Well, there's a reason in college why those, you know, 7 a.m. or 8 8 a.m. classes, you know, usually have room available and seats are available. Right. Even after registration is completed, right? Right. And then you get to law school and they make you show up at (laughs) 8 
around 200 other folks and stand up and do the Socratic method while everybody stares at you. Exactly. And sips on their coffee. <laughs> I want to do one more. And then, uh, like I said, I'm going to be catching up with Miss Perry uh, right after uh, you and I have finished our conversation. And Amy and I will be discussing some bills related to the recent medical marijuana legislation, immunizations, and then uh, smartphones. But how about a quick hit on SB 711 and the procedures for change of gender on student documents? Yeah, this bill really um, kind of addresses something that districts have been dealing with for a while, and that is um, students who have graduated and left school and then later uh, go through the process of uh, having their their name and gender changed uh, through the legal process. And districts haven't quite known what to do up until this point about those students who do return and have these documents available. Now this bill uh, clears up that question and, and clearly states that, they, that the, those documents allow the district and require the district to go back and change the name and that information on the students in their records. So this may include things, you know, not only on the records that districts are typically required to maintain, but also ceremonial documents such as diplomas. Perfect. Ruth, this has been a pleasure. Like I said, I'll catch up with Amy. Um, This is a very helpful summary uh, of this year's critical student legislation as we look forward to January, January 1, 2020, July 1, 2020, and then for some of these bills such as the start time that really won't won't fully come into effect until perhaps even a later date. But your expertise and explanation, I think, is going to be of great value to our listeners. And we'll look forward to the client news briefs that are set to publish that provide uh, information on all these in detail and in writing. Thanks for the conversation, Sloan. And having wrapped up uh, my discussion with Ruth Mendick this morning about a range of student legislation, I'm now lucky to be joined by our other co-practice group leader in the student area, Amy Perry, one of our partners here in Sacramento, an expert in student and special education issues. And we left for you three of the new legislative enactments this year, perhaps some of the the more, at least one that has caught a a large amount of, of public attention and scrutiny and news coverage, but three interesting issues regardless. And let's start first with one of your unique areas of expertise, which is students and marijuana. What is the latest uh, legislative enactment that affects this area, Amy? Yeah, so Governor uh, Gavin Newsom just signed Senate Bill 223 on October 9th, and this was a bill that we had been watching and monitoring for quite some time. A similar bill had gone through the legislature last year and didn't quite make it. But Senate Bill 223 is called JoJo's Act, and it essentially allows a school district, if they choose, to enact a policy which would permit parents or guardians to come onto campus and administer uh, medicinal cannabis to students. Amy, JoJo's Act is, uh, you and uh, Alyssa Bivens did a, a podcast earlier this year on marijuana and students and the preeminent kind of OAH decision in this area. Is that in reference to that student? What's what's the JoJo connection? The student in this particular bill that was referenced is a student um, from San Francisco. I don't believe it's the same student since JoJo referenced in this bill as a teenager, and I believe the student from the case out of OAH was um, a much younger student. I think kindergarten age was the age of that student. 
But nonetheless, again, another student who has come out and is pretty prominent in terms of the effects and benefits that they're seeing in terms of medicinal cannabis for students in a, in a medical context. So what are the nuts and bolts of this new law? So it essentially allows a school district, and it's just a bill which would allow a school district to pass a policy if they so choose. It sets forth specific requirements if a school district does, uh, in fact, choose to enact that policy. It provides that if they are going to enact the policy that before the medicinal cannabis is administered, that the parent or guardian provide a valid written medical recommendation. Um, as we covered in our podcast previously, medicinal cannabis is still very much alive in California. A lot of us are much more familiar with recreational, but individuals can still get a medical recommendation, not a prescription, but a recommendation from a doctor. So the student would need to have that. The parent would need to submit that medical recommendation for the student. Uh, it would then be kept on file at the school. The parent or guardian before coming onto campus and administering the medicinal cannabis would have to sign in. Um, they are not allowed to administer cannabis in any way that would disrupt the educational environment. And after they do in fact administer it, they have to take it with them. And those are all required components to the policy. So there is some flexibility in terms of the policy that a school district would enact, but these are four required components of that policy. I know you're going to get into some of the questions that are left open with this law, but can you talk for a second about, to the extent this is a, a not a mandatory policy, and a district can choose whether or not, a district and its board can choose whether or not to enact a policy, does this uh, present any perhaps unique issues that could arise in the, in the special ed context if a student says, I need that to receive a FAPE? Uh, but my district has refused to adopt a policy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's these are a lot of the lingering questions that we have from school districts. This is simply a policy which would allow it, as we've discussed in our in our previous podcast, the the real issue here is that federally cannabis is still very much illegal, with the exception of the three cannabis-based medic medicines that have received FDA approval. Everything else is still illegal, whereas in California, we know that it is legal uh, from a medicinal standpoint for students to be taking it. So, you know, we've seen from OAH that they were of the opinion that it can be administered, at least in the unique circumstances presented in that case. That case definitely took us all you know, a back, if you will, when we read that decision. That's Rincon Valley. That was the Rincon Valley case, correct. So that really, you know, was a surprising case for, my, for, for us in terms of special ed, looking at it saying, yes, a school district can, in fact, administer it. Um, I think that argument can be made. The discussion that we have typically with clients is, is it written into an IEP, you know, and, and that sort of thing to flesh out the facts because Rincon was very fact specific in that in that way. What are some of the other kind of remaining questions that, that fall from the new law? The biggest one is discipline, for sure. Um, it's really unclear how school districts should be treating uh, students who are, in fact, under the influence of medicinal cannabis in this instance. So bear with me here. So we have a, a district, they've adopted a policy allowing for a student to take medical cannabis on campus in a non-smokable, non-vapable manner because that's what the law requires as drafted student is then quote unquote under the influence of cannabis it is still under ed code 
not permissible for a student to be under the influence of a controlled substance, which in fact cannabis still is. And this is one of those those bigger questions uh, that districts are really going to have to to grapple with and struggle with and figure out where they're going to fall if they do in fact enact this policy. Is it perhaps just oversimplifying it, but that if you do enact a policy like this, the most sensical conclusion on this issue would be to include a provision that if and when a student pursuant to this policy uh, is administered the medical marijuana, that in that instance, it will not constitute a violation of the relevant ed code provisions for being under the influence? I think they definitely could. And I think that that would be an easy way to look at it and to to draft a policy, again, that provision still exists under under Ed Code as to, you know, it is explicitly prohibited. And so again, you know, the districts are gonna have to figure out what they're gonna do with these students. And the the larger questions that Allie Bivens and I have kind of, you know, talked about with relation to JoJo's Act is, you know, are they in the sense school districts going to be coming down and saying medicinal cannabis is okay if you've received a doctor's note? Are we starting to look at qualifying disabilities? It, it starts to become more difficult, I would say. What about the HIPAA-FERPA issue, which I'll admit this is the first time that I can recall uh, the legislature doing what it did in JoJo's Act on this issue? Yeah, so they explicitly stated, again, remember, the first requirement of a policy is that parents have to submit a, a medical recommendation for cannabis. So what Jojo Zach goes on to say is that that medical recommendation is a medical record that is covered under HIPAA, not FERPA, which runs in direct conflict with the provision that explicitly states if it's a FERPA record, it can't be a HIPAA record. Right. And that's from the HIPAA regulations, right? Correct. Correct. And what about those students who don't have parents or guardians able to administer yeah, so, you know, a lot of the, the families out there that have students who are taking medical cannabis aren't that happy with this law for this very reason, that if the parent or guardian is not available to administer the medication, then this law really did nothing for them. This essentially does require a parent or guardian, quite frankly, to go onto the campus. It can't be a care provider. It can't be another individual. It cannot be school officials uh, to administer the medication. So, Obviously, that's that's difficult for most parents during a school day to leave work, uh, to go to a school site, to administer a medication like this for a student, and especially if the student needs it on an emergency basis or if they need it more frequently than once a day. Does this, uh, and this law goes in effect January 1? Of 2020, correct. Of 2020, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, how about another interesting one, which I think is also maybe a reflection of kind of changing times, AB 272 and the student use of smartphones at school. So yes, so AB 272 takes effect in January, uh, January 1 of 2020, and it is a bill that specifically allows for students to have on their person their smartphone and to use a smartphone under specific circumstances that are listed under the bill. So what are the, the four scenarios or categories that the bill outlines. So it states explicitly during an emergency situation or as a response to a perceived threat of danger, when a teacher or administrator gives permission to a student to possess or use the cell phone subject to reasonable limitations, when necessary for the health or well-being of a student as determined by a licensed physician or surgeon, and uh, the fourth being when possession or use of the cell phone is required pursuant to an IEP. 
So the, the overarching concept here is one, legislative authority granted to districts to adopt a policy that says you, you are prohibited from possession slash use of your smartphone, cell phone on school grounds. However, if that policy is adopted, it needs to have exceptions for those four categories. Correct. And we would expect that the the two biggest ones where we're going to see, you know, students wanting to use it in districts may, you know, may or may not buy into that are the last two for the health or well-being as deemed by a physician or surgeon and as prescribed by an IEP team. There have been, you know, a lot of a lot, I think, more issues in terms of that context, in terms of an outside licensed physician or surgeon saying a student needs this, and then the school district not necessarily agreeing or wanting to place limitations on that use of that cell phone or in an IEP context as well. For districts that aren't interested in wading into the policy area here, there's no obligation by a school district to adopt a policy on point. No. I think that AB 272 just simply says that students have this explicit right. And so if they don't have that policy already in place, there's no need to revise it. Got it. So long as these four exception categories are always recognized policy or not. Correct. Interesting. All right. The third one, which has been um, for, for anyone monitoring the news in California, and this has also gotten nationwide coverage. I think I saw a couple of uh, pieces on it in the PBS NewsHour over the last six months. But California's most recent legislative work in the area of student immunizations, an area that I know you've done a lot of work in over the years. What What's the new bill there? So there are two new Senate bills that were passed, SB 276 and 714. And in both of these bills, what the legislature is trying to do is really drill down on and limit uh, the medical exemptions that are being received by school districts. Now, what are some of the... I understand that there's there's going to be a new form that will be required by 2021, and as well as some terms that relate to this overarching concern by the legislature of doctors issuing exemptions that, that perhaps aren't justified. What are some of the, the, the steps that this new legislation takes in that in those areas? Yeah, so essentially what the two Senate bills have done is that they're allowing current medical exemptions to remain in place after the January 1, 2021, the new form that's going to be uh, developed by the California Department of Health, uh, Public Health is going to be the only form that can be used for medical exemptions. So this is gonna be a big change. A lot of school districts have been receiving these exemptions kind of in different formats um, from different you know, physicians, and there hasn't been a uniform approach really in terms of what had to be included. So that's going to be a big change in terms of just the form itself. There will be a, uni- a uniform form to be used by school districts. So if I'm a student who has a valid medical exemption on file documented through a doctor's, in essence, I'll call it a note, mm-hmm. and I got I have that on file before January 1, 2020, Districts, what? how does that interact for districts in that scenario? How long is that exemption valid? So the bills state explicitly that students who have that valid medical exemption in place before January 1, 2020 can continue until their next grade span. And the grade span is what was what we previously used, which is still preschool, kindergarten, grade six, and then grade seven. What about this, uh, I guess I call it a, a right to audit or, or review authority for the California Department of Public Health based upon certain data points? 
Yeah, so this is a pretty interesting one. So um, the bill specifically states that CDPH can come in and um, monitor school district with one of three data points. So if overall their immunization rate is less than 95%, if they have um, five or more medical exemptions from the same physician or surgeon during a calendar year, or if they have not provided the reports regarding vaccination rates to CDPH, they can be monitored. And I, I guess this is unspoken or it's included within the law itself. I'll, I assume to the extent CDPH, California Department of Public Health, can measure those data points to decide whether or not to come in, that the law provides for provision and exchange of that data and or you know, exemptions from specific doctors directly with CDPH. Yes. Right. Yeah, and it's it's definitely an interesting bill. A lot of our clients did receive um, Public Records Act requests regarding these exemption medical exemption rates within their school districts, and it's definitely been, like you indicated, you know, something that both state and nationwide people are taking interest in for sure. Well, and I, it seems like those requests are still ongoing. Um, L.A. Times and some other larger yes. publications, and it, it based anecdotally on things we've heard, um, the medical board is also looking into perhaps certain doctors around the state requesting information in relation to the number of exemptions being issued. So definitely an area that the legislature has taken very seriously. There's obviously very strong feelings on both sides of this legislation, but but it is now law and, and now we have these parameters to operate with going forward. Absolutely. And for you know those districts who are not doing it before, when we receive those medical exemptions, we normally go on to the state board to make sure that their license is current because there are do, you know doctors who are losing their licenses or at least having them suspended uh, because of these medical exemptions. So it is an, an issue that's being taken seriously by the state. Amy, so I had the pleasure of talking with Ruth this morning your fellow co-practice group leader, you this afternoon. Thank you very much for these very insightful thoughts on these new student bills, some of which are ready to go into effect January 1, others at later dates, all of which are important for school districts around the state to be aware of and to begin planning in terms of implementation. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page on our website at lazanosmith.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find additional details on the topics we discussed today, as well as a wide range of other podcasts on other topics of interest to uh, school districts, as well as cities and counties and other municipalities throughout the state. And make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss one. Um, you can do that through our website as well, through Apple and a range of other of podcast platforms. Amy, thanks. Thanks, Sloan. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, Its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.